honor and praise of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated, and as you're seated, turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. If you need a Bible, we do have Bibles available in the foyer, and you can pick one up right now, um, follow along, or um, and you can always pick one up on your way in. If you need a Bible, please uh, keep one uh, for yourself. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 3, focusing on verses 13 through 17. As we, as we, you know, why do we keep doing this week to week? We keep coming back to God's Word. We are reminded that we are like leaky buckets, you know, that we uh, forget the grace of God. We can uh, live according to performance rather than God's grace. We can forget the purposes that He has directed us to. And so as we come um, and we gather together, we're reminded why are we here? What's true of us? And what's even better than that? What's true of God? That we could see uh, that and live according to that instead of just all the ways that the world wants to steer and direct us, um, which is contrary to God's word and is destructive. So, um, and that's what we do as we come to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 17 and Jesus' baptism where ministry begins. So, uh, listen to God's holy, his inerrant, his perfect word. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased." This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Please pray with me. Father, as we come to this, we ask that you'd help us to see Jesus. You'd help us to know him more, to worship him well. And God, that you would encourage our hearts with whatever that we bring here today to have greater confidence in your grace, greater confidence in your plans and purposes. And Father, just to see our lives to come under your purpose and your will for us. And so God, glorify yourself in this time. Let the meditations of our hearts, let my words be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I get to know couples um, and, and, and sometimes meet with them or we do premarital counseling or those things, one of the questions I like to ask is, how did you know that she was the one? Or how did you know that he was the one? And so for some of you married couples, maybe you could answer that sometime today. But for me, I remember the first time I saw Julie, um, my wife, and the first time I saw her was at a prayer meeting, uh, which was at six o'clock on the morning on our college campus. Now, I'd probably seen her before then, at some of the other evening events, but something about getting together for a 6 a.m. prayer meeting, she really stood out to me on that day. I, I thought she was beautiful, but more than that, it was just her character, which would get up and would do, uh, which would get up to pray with the rest of a bunch of college students so early on a school day. Um, 
we ended up, some other things we did, we did a mission trip together. We happened to both go to that same mission trip. We didn't intentionally go on it together. It's before we really knew each other. We ended up working at Chick-fil-A together. Surprisingly, again, we were a Chick-fil-A relationship. Some of you um, know those things. But again, it was somewhat accidental moving into those things. Um, we did some evangelistic work together. Um, you know, we got, remember knowing each other on campus getting bagels, but it's, it's funny looking back on all of those things, you know, I still remember that time that I saw her at their prayer meeting and thinking, could she be the one? And God proved that she was. Um, what we want to look at today is we look at Jesus's baptism. It's the world's first glimpse that he was the one. Um, this is the event that revealed that Jesus was the one that John the Baptist was looking for. If we remember uh, the passage we looked at last week from Matthew 3, uh, 1 through 12, you know, he was the one who was going to, through his baptism, make way for the servant of God to come in. He was the one who's going to reveal who this Messiah, the Savior was to the rest of the world. And so now this one has come. He is the, um, the one that Israel was waiting for. And he is the one that we need even if we are not looking for him spiritually, we still need him. And some things we're going to look at today should make us think, is this the one that I really need? Is this who I really need for the issues that I'm dealing with in my life now? Now, what's behind this as we look at this account is an identification of greatness, an identification of greatness. And that's really what we see just right here at the beginning. And the rest of his ministry does, it builds and it grows on this. It expands out of this, but it's really connected with the events that we see here, just kind of in a seed form, in a microcosm sort of way, which kind of explodes and blows out as we read the rest of this book of, of Matthew. It's showing power and it's showing humility. It shows Jesus in a way uh, that we would be compelled to follow him. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage. There's two main points, uh, verses 13 and 14 and 15. You know, that's our main first point. Uh, Jesus' baptism and his being set apart for ministry. So you see the preparation, his thinking, his, his pattern that, and, and the background that leads to that. And then in the second part, which is verses uh, 16 and 17, we see the power that comes out of, and the motivation which comes out of that. And all this is instructive as we think through our own lives as well, as we think about doing ministry in Jesus' name, as we think of our own preparation and thoughts as, and we plan, as we think of, of what is it that we really find as our um, motivation, what is it that we really find as our own power for the things that we, we might do in Jesus' name in our own lives. All right, so let's look at the first point, uh, Jesus' baptism being set apart for ministry. Verse 13, we read this, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now, Jesus, this is following on uh, the previous paragraph where we see people from all over the land going to John the Baptist uh, to be baptized. You know, that they're as John the Baptist preaches this message of repentance, as a number of people are baptized, as more and more people are going out to him. And now Jesus, he's up in Galilee, he's going to come down south, and he's going to come there for the very purpose of being baptized. John the Baptist doesn't want this. We see this in verse 14. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? 
Now, why would John have wanted to stop this? Well, I mean, he knew Jesus. He, this is, he is Jesus' cousin, and, and he knew some things about him. What we're going to see later is he didn't know everything about him. He didn't know this part about his life, that he was the Savior who was to come. Um, you know, but he did know certain things about him. And one thing that he would have seen was that Jesus was uh, morally superior to John. And as John says in, in Matthew 13, 11, he says, I baptize, I baptize you with a baptism of repentance. He looks at Jesus and he says, you know, Jesus, you don't have anything to repent of. Why would you come and to be part of this baptism? You know, it just makes you think, you know, you know, about what it would be to be in Jesus's family, right? And some of the challenges with being in Jesus's family. Could you imagine, um, you know, being Jesus's cousin and how that would affect maybe the way your parents interact with you? You know, maybe, John, why couldn't you be more like Jesus? You keep eating all those bugs and he doesn't eat bugs. And what are you wearing? Couldn't you dress more like Jesus? Um, you know, but, you know, seriously, he is his cousin. He does see something different in Jesus, and he sees that he doesn't need baptism. Um, and this baptism of repentance, he has nothing to repent of. Um, but as we look at verse 15, Jesus insists. Uh, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then uh, John the Baptist consented. He baptized Jesus. So what does Jesus mean when he says it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness? I mean, it means, is, is the way I see it, is that there's some obligation before God to be baptized. You know, he doesn't have an obligation to repent because, um, as John's already identified, he hasn't sinned. He doesn't need to be washed in that way. And, and so what's going on? Up to this point, as we've read Matthew, we've seen a lot about Jesus being king. We call that one of his offices. You know, as he was born, he was born in the line of David. Um, as the wise men came, they said, who is he is born king of the Jews? As Herod is threatened by him, he's threatened by this king who is um, uh, to, to, to come. Um, but here as we come to chapter 3, we see one of Jesus' other offices, not just the office of king, but we see his office of priest. Uh, he is a priest. Now, what is the significance of a priest? Maybe you have an image in your head of what a priest is, but you know, a priest is someone who brings us to God, who brings our needs, who brings our prayers, who brings sacrifices to God so that we can then approach him. They're, they're ones that approach God on our behalf. They're mediators. You know, as a prophet brings God's word down into your life, or a king rules over, what we see is a prophet, is a priest brings up, a priest brings up to God for uh, prayers and brings up for reconciliation. And that's one of the offices that Jesus uh, fulfilled as a, um, in, in his role as Savior. If you look at the sidebars inside of your bulletin, I, one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says, you know, what do we mean by Jesus' office of a priest? And it gives a, a short and, and very helpful explanation of what it means for him to be that, that, that priest. Because he's one who accomplished, you know, what all the other priests pointed to needing happening is that he actually did it in his death, his resurrection, and his um, sitting at the right hand of God. 
As we look inside the Old Testament, we see that, that the Levitical priesthood, the priests of the Old Testament, they had certain requirements. And um, one of the requirements is that at age of 30, uh, that they would be um, washed. They would be ceremonially washed. We can read about that in Numbers chapter 8, verses 5 through 7, where we see uh, God speaking to Moses uh, Numbers 8, verse 5, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 6, take the Levites, that's that priestly tribe, um, take uh, the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. You shall do to them and cleanse them, sprinkle the water of purification upon them, let them go with a razor of their body, wash their clothes and cleanse themselves. And so there's a purification process they would have to start this work. And so one of the best ways to understand what's happening here with Jesus is I think he's going through a similar ordination for himself. Now, Jesus uh, was not in the tribe of Levi. He was not a Levitical priest, so there's some differences there. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. He's of that kingly class is there. Um, in fact, if you look into the book of, of Hebrews, it says that Jesus' priesthood was a little different. It was, they say, of the order of Melchizedek. In other words, um, just for simplicity here, there were some different rules that went along with it. There was some different standard. It wasn't the Levitical priesthood. It was a different priesthood that he was in. But still, there was some recognition of being set apart for a certain work. There's some recognition that people would have that, that there is an office that a person would enter into um, through a pattern like this. And as Jesus comes to John the Baptist, we see him being set apart for this ministry, and especially this ministry as a priest. When you're coming under with John's baptism. This is his ordination. This is the, the movement for his private ministry, his private life into his public ministry and what he's going to do uh, with his people over the next three years as he moves towards the cross. It's interesting as, we, as you consider that how Jesus would have put himself under the same rules that he would have created as God. Remember who Jesus is. He is the son of God. He's the holy God. And he's, you know, of, uh, as being God, he's the one who would have set up the rules that all the Levitical priests and every priest would have ever had in order to go and to um, approach God. You know, he's the holy God, and, and in order for a person to approach God, they need to approach God uh, with holiness, being set apart to be washed and, and cleansed. You know, the whole books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they, they describe these rules for an unholy people to approach a holy God. And then as we come to see Jesus, what we see him doing is that he subjected himself to the same rules that he gave his people. Although he was the perfect son of God, in coming as a man, he was subjected to the rules of ministering as his priest of God. As a good Jewish boy, he would have made sacrifices. And a good Jewish young man, he would have made sacrifices to God. He would offer the normal sacrifice every Jewish man would have. And, and so this is one part in that fulfilling righteousness. It's like setting a bedtime for your children and then forcing yourself to do that same exact bedtime. Or maybe if you're a, a famous chef and you prepare meals and you charge other people to buy that meal and then yet you're going to buy your own meal from yourself or something like that. It's hard to find some examples of that, but Jesus uh, didn't act like that. Um, you know, he needed to be just like us. If he was going to be a priest of the people, if he was going to stand in our place, he needed uh, to do the parts of a priest. 
And this shows something really important about Jesus. I mean, it shows his humility. You know, here is the eternal God who's establishing human standards for the priesthood. And then he puts that pattern onto himself. Again, if you look in the bulletin, you'll see another thing that is copied in there. Um, the, and it's a question, question 27 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you know, asks this, you know, what do we mean about the humiliation of Christ? You know, in other words, what are we talking about when we t- talk about his humility? And it says this, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition. In other words, he was born in a human body into a poor family. And then it says, made under the law. You know, he's born to this Jewish family. They would have participated in sacrifices and those things. You know, again, putting himself under those laws which he had established even as God. And so it shows an important picture of what effective ministry looks like. Ministry to others requires humility. To be able to help others, you need to be able to enter into their lives. You need to be able to enter their challenges by listening, by caring, by acting on behalf of others. You know, it's not a matter of sitting on ivory towers and making pronouncements of things that are going on around you or things that are going on around the world, but it's, it's a time to invest into the lives of others. You know, we need to be able to commit ourselves by humbling ourselves to take on others' needs. And to be effective, you must be surrendered ultimately to the Lord because humility ultimately means being surrendered to God. Now, whenever we ordain a new elder or deacon, and if you've been here for one of our ordination services, um, you'll remember that they usually kneel on the ground and the other elders gather around them and lay hands on them and pray for them. You know, it's not that they're kneeling before us, it's that they're kneeling before God, knowing that, the, you know, that this ordination from God matters. They are surrendering themselves and ultimately um, before God. Um, for the things they have before them. And that's a really an important picture for all of us in any kind of ministry we do, whether we're care group leaders or Sunday school teachers or uh, whether we're uh, serving in some administrative function or organizing a, a ministry, is it recognized with all of those things we are called to humility in the way that we do it. And that's Jesus' life. It's just a, a snapshot of his life. We see it here in his baptism. It goes on, we can see him washing his disciples' feet. It goes on as we see him giving his life on a cross. Effective ministry requires humility in service. Now, I want to talk about one more thing before I get to the next point, and it's just going back to Jesus' words where he says, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And it's just to take a minute and to think of what we call the active righteousness of Christ. The active righteousness of Christ. Um, we love to talk about how Jesus died for our sins on the cross, and that is really important. When he died on the cross, he took the sins of his people on himself, and he atoned for them. You know, and so we know our sins are taken away because Jesus died for them. And that's what we talk about when we talk about the passive righteousness of Christ. But what about his active righteousness? So we need to remember that Jesus fulfilled every single requirement God ever made it of him. Of him. Every single requirement that was there. And so when we have faith in Jesus, uh, God gives us Jesus' perfections. It's not just the passive righteousness which takes our sins away as just important and critical as that is, but just as important, just as critical is that God gives us his, the righteousness in Christ. 
right? We have all of his goodness. It's not like God takes away our sins and says, well, now let's see if you make something of your life, right? He, he fulfilled all righteousness, and he gives us his. And so when, uh, when Jesus was baptized, you know, we see him entering into this Jordan River, and, and he's entering that same Jordan River that, that all these other repenting sinners are baptized in. And it's a good picture of us for us to see you know, that Jesus would identify with his people, identifying with sinners, so that he would become their righteousness. Right? He took on our human nature. He took on our guilt. He was associated with a sinful race. He was associated with sinful Israel. And as he, as he fulfilled every righteous requirement of the law, those are given to us in him. So when God sees us, he sees Christ's righteousness in us, and there's a love that he has for his people. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what that's talking about. The act of righteousness given for you, fulfilled by Christ in everything that he did. He's very attentive to it, even as he goes to baptism with John the Baptist. All right, so there's a, there's a lot that's going up to this point. There's a lot of this is the setup, right? It's the setup. But in it, we see the heart of, of Jesus. We see his attitude um, that's at the one time so great and also so humble. And it's one of those things that makes Jesus attractive. He's so great and he is so humble. You know, he's commissioned for his ministry. He fulfills every righteous requirement of the law and he identifies us uh, with us as sinners. He came to save us. All right, so now let's see what actually happens when Jesus is baptized. That's our second point, really starting in verse 16. Um, it shows what God the Spirit and God the Father does. Verse 16 uh, starts off by saying, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Now, um, and all, this word immediately has an important place here in this passage, because it shows us something important about him. Um, you know, it's, you actually kind of wonder, why would that word immediately be there? Because, of course, I mean, he wasn't going to stay underwater forever. I mean, you know, uh, is it mean that he stayed down in the water for a certain amount of time, but it was really quick? I mean, that's, that's, that's not the point that it's making. The immediately refers to the fact that when he was baptized, he left that Jordan River. He walked out of the river. So if you remember, uh, we talked about John's baptism last week. And what we said about John's baptism is that he would baptize them in repentance, and then they would confess their sins out to the people who were there. They'd confess it to John. They would confess it to everybody who was standing there. But what about Jesus? What do we see happening here? He's baptized, no sins to confess. He immediately, without doing anything else, leaves the Jordan River. No sins to confess. Now, and before anybody says, ah, you got to confess your sin. No, 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 nobody's like that. You know, what do you see happen? Verse 16 goes on. It says, behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. In other words, Jesus is stepping out of the water, uh, is saying he has no sin. And in order to testify to the truth of that, the presence of God and the Holy Spirit, the voice of God, affirms the actions that he has made. We see 
the Holy Spirit coming down. This is a spiritual event. It's a spiritual event in the life of Christ, and it shows the power with which from here on out that he would do all of his work. He did what he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what we talk about is he's in fellowship with God the Father. He's living according to the word of God. And, and, and there's this fellowship that they have. And he labors together in this perfect communion with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And we see this really throughout his whole life. You know, how was his ministry so effective? It's because, you know, his connection with this, the power of God in the work, in the person of the Holy Spirit. He lived in independence in that way. So we can look at various passages. I have a bunch of passages here which show what he did. John 14, 4, John 4, 14, it says, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and report about him went through all the surrounding country. You know, so he's, he's ministering in the Spirit of God and what's happening? So many powerful things are working around him that he, he goes back to Galilee and this report goes out. I mean, the power of God is going with him as he, as he moves and as God's directing his life and even his decisions. Uh, Luke 4, 18, Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So in the things that he's saying, he's directed by the spirit of God. Luke 5, 17, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. How is it he did the miracles that he did? Um, this miracle of healing is in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Matthew 4, 1. When, uh, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's like our next verse we're going to do next week. Um, but we see even the Spirit leading him into this place of temptation. And we'll see the reasons for that. But again, following uh, the Spirit even at a place of temptation. Matthew 12, 18, uh, where God says about Jesus, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And then Matthew 12, 28, Jesus said, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Again, we see the power of his work is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Hebrews nine fourteen. Uh, where it says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How is it that Jesus uh, went through all the way to the cross to offer himself as a sacrifice to pay for sin? It says he did it through the eternal spirit. The Holy Spirit was the power of Jesus for his ministry and that's the power that any of us will have inside of our ministry. If there's any power, any effectiveness to be had in the things we do, it's because of the Holy Spirit coming and aiding in that ministry. And the good news is he sends the Holy Spirit to you. He sends the Holy Spirit to you that you'd be a minister. If you look back at Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John the Baptist says this about Jesus. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He, meaning Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Any effectiveness we have in ministering to others must be done in the power of the Spirit. And so if we find, you know, we're not um, really caring for or helping others in the way maybe we'd like to, we'd say, God, I, I need you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. You know, because I'm called to go and to help, you know, help me to 
have a spiritual power that comes, that I can care for this needs of others. I need your spirit to come um, into my life. And, and if we see ineffective ministry and we're just kind of going through things, we're not seeing fruit, um, you know, maybe part of it is just saying, God, you know, instead of me just trusting my preparations, trusting all these answers I have, you know, trusting, you know, my own personality or those things, God, would you give me true, um, you know, would you have the Holy Spirit to work through me? Help me to trust you. And, and would you do a work in their lives directly by your Spirit? And so Jesus is a model for us in ministry, effective ministries in the spirit of God. It's not just based on physical abilities that we have or charisma, but the working of the spirit of God. And so you can have big, gigantic groups that gather together under charismatic speakers and, you know, no spiritual power that's there. Lives aren't changed. God is not glorified in that. You can have a, a little small gathering of people, um, but one that learns to be totally dependent on the Holy Spirit and people are saved and lives are changed and spiritual truth is communicated. Sometimes Jesus had big groups and sometimes he had little groups. You know, so our call to be um, in this, uh, to be led by the Spirit in this way is to pray, to be um, trusting God's word, to be faithful um, in all those things, and really just to, you know, you know, and that conviction of the truth of these things, to speak those in the lives of the people around us. That's how Jesus lives, and that's what we need. The Second Timothy 1.7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. If we want to be more effective with our loved ones, in our evangelism, in our teaching, we need to pray that God's power would fill us, that his spirit would enter into the lives of the people that we, that we speak to. Now, there's another important thing I want to look at in the passage, and that is what the Father says in verse 17, where he says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So this is a, a, the, it's like a presentation, right? It's a presentation out to the world. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so we see two things. There's the public revealing of the identity of Jesus. And there's also, secondly, the declaration of his love for his son. Not only does the spirit come down, but God authenticates this baptism by, by speaking himself. Now, one thing we should notice here is that the three persons of the Trinity are involved here, right? God the Father is here. God the, Father, or God the Father is here, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three are there. And they're all present at the same exact time. They're all interacting with one another. As Jesus baptizes, the Spirit comes down, and the Father speaks. Right? And, you know, there's a, there's a heresy that's called modalism, also called Sibelianism or oneness Christology. And there's this idea that God the Father turns into God the Son, and then God the Son turns into God the Holy Spirit. But there can only be one of them at a time, so they kind of shapeshift almost from one to another. But, you know, it's been a heresy uh, that the church has dealt with uh, from the beginning, and it's one that continues to crop up in certain fields even, even today. You know, but what do we see here? And, you know, it's just helpful to see. You see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, demonstrating what they've had from all eternity past is fellowship, relationship, and communication with one another. I mean, it really is the sense for all of our relationships grow out of this uh, relationship that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have. 
You know, you know, we remember that, that God did not create us because he was bored and he had no one to talk to, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they always had love and communication and, and fellowship with one another. And so why create us? I mean, it's the overflow of that love. It's the opportunity to share in that love. It's the, the demonstration of that love out into the world. It's the overflowing work of the, of, of the Trinity into the world. And so what we see here also is a fatherly blessing. God the Father speaks to God's to God the Son. When God sees his Son, he sees his perfect image. And there is delight in that image. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 speaks about Jesus. It says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he sees this perfect son of God in perfect compliance with his will. He tells the world that he loves his son and he's pleased with his son. It's the language of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or the language of Isaiah 42.1, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. That's my servant in whom my soul delights delights. You know, it's, it's a good reminder to us, to me, as I reflect on this as a parent, you know, the, the need of uh, blessing our children with our words. You know, if God the Father does it with God the Son, you know, certainly as parents, especially as fathers, we can do that with our own uh, children. Um, and what a model this is, um, how it encourages them in the way that they should go. You know, as the father speaks here, you know, he sets the path for the son. He blesses him in, continuing, in him continuing in it. And, and that's the role of a, of a parental blessing in the lives of our own children. It recognizes the qualities of our children. It expresses approval, pride, and joy, you know, in those things. It, it sees those areas where they are doing right and moving in that direction and, and, and pressing them to continue in that way. And the success they'd find in pursuing that way. You know, if as parents all that we do is correct our children, you know, we miss out on what they're doing right. You know, that's frustrating, that's exasperating. You know, we want to learn how to tell them how they're doing well, how encouraged we are in them, reminding them of the hope that we have for their future, encouraging them to walk in that. You know, we look for ways to uh, bless our children. If we're in a place of authority, you know, maybe an employer, something like that, you know, where we have people working under us or around us or somebody who's doing menial work around us, you know, we can also find ways to encourage uh, them in their work, especially if we're inclined just to find the negative things around us. You know, we find ways to speak a blessing into other people's lives. There's one more thing I'd like to encourage you to remember in these words that God speaks to his son. And that's that if you have faith in Jesus, is that God the Father looks at you in the same exact way. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know, I already talked about that passive and active righteousness of Christ, right? Everything in Christ and fulfilling the righteousness of God has been given to you. In God's eyes, you're as beautiful as Jesus is. If you're in Christ, you carry his perfections. They are yours. 
And that's why we can say things like Zephaniah 3.17, which is astounding in, in, in what it says. Zephaniah 3.17, not a passage we think of very much. If I told you to turn there, you wouldn't even know where to turn. I'm just guessing. I don't know that I would. It would take me a few minutes. But Zephaniah 3.17, it says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. You know, what, what, a, what a statement. You know, why will he rejoice over you with gladness, quiet you within his love, exult over you with loud singing? You know, because he does those things for his own son. And as you're united to Christ by faith, he sees Christ's righteousness in you. And he delights and he loves that. He doesn't see the sin anymore. It's in that love and forgiveness and in the adoption that he rejoices, exults over you. So remember at the beginning how I asked you, you know, how you found the one? You know, this was the starting point of seeing Jesus' glory. And if we see him as they did, we, you know, we'll be amazed as they were. If you turn over to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 29, we can see what a powerful moment it was, at least for John the Baptist, right? So he recounts it a few months later, weeks later, months later, I don't know. But, um, but he speaks about what he saw in this event. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes the man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. You see his work. It's revealing. His, he was, that's why he was doing this. Part of the reason he was doing this baptizing work, to reveal this one who was to come. Verse uh, 1, uh, John 1, 32. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Here is Jesus, the perfect Son of God, who humbled himself, who entered in these baptismal waters for us, and he labored under the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who brings you into the pleasures of God, into relationship with him, that you can live under the fatherly love and the direction of God. That's what he has done for you. And as we know Jesus more intimately, we find more and more reasons to worship and adore him. When we never reach the end of his glory. You know, you think about finding the one, like somebody you're going to marry. You know, you know, there is attraction at that point. One of the questions is, is how do you continue to, to, to grow in that? We have to keep curiosity and interest and engagement about their life and continue to, to know more about that person. When it comes to Jesus, you know, we first see him and we see what he's done. We hear of the forgiveness of sins and he brings us in a relationship with God and those we consider to see what he's done. And we see of his glories and his perfections. You know, we grow in our worship. We grow in our devotion. We start with the perfection of Jesus and we continue to learn more and more. We remember our place. We remember our sin. 
and his grace that he's shown to us. If you're outside of faith in Jesus, I know why you're outside of faith. Ultimately, I know why. It's because you haven't seen how glorious he really is. You know, why would you believe him if you don't see his glory? And so maybe you have an intellectual, an emotional, some sort of hindrance which help, you know, keeps you to really putting your faith in Jesus. If you want forgiveness of sin, the assurance of heaven, power for a new life, you need to go to him. He is the one. He died for his people. He raised from the dead. You know, my challenge to you is to know Jesus better. Get to know Jesus better. Read the book of Matthew. Read the book of Mark. Read the book of um, Luke and John. You know, just get to know how he uh, reveals himself. And you'll see, you know, my, my, my prayer is this, is that God would open your heart, that you would see that he's the one. You'd be amazed at who this one is and what he brought in the world when he came. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what a picture that we have with Jesus in his baptism. We see his perfections, we see his humility, we see his power. Father, we just pray that you would help us to grow in our knowledge of Jesus, that we'd learn more of him, that we'd, and we'd be amazed by him, that our devotion to him would grow. God, if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus, Father, would you help them to see for themselves that he's the one you've sent? Father, you have to give spiritual eyes. You have to open our eyes and heart to see it. We pray you'd grant that. And Father, strengthen our worship for your honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.